Dr. Schulz, welcome back to the conversation. We're talking about this great book that you've put together, Mission Briefing on Suffering, which we're now on briefing two, where the thesis is really going to hit home because in briefing one, we were able to look out a little bit and see Nietzsche and the problem of suffering, but now it's going to be, well, okay, what has the church had to do with that? And perhaps there's some repentance on our end as well. Um, we, we're just, before we hit record, we're talking about how this picture that Leon Cass gives of the replacement of the picture of, hum, of humanity the, and the glass man is a, is a good metaphor for the shift that the culture has made in regard to suffering. So let, maybe we'll start with that story. You can tell and his insight there, and then we'll and we'll press on towards this idea of, I think we're, I don't know if we'll end there, but what we want to at least hit the high point is that we failed to lament. And so our failure to lament has, has grown out of, and has been the cause of all sorts of trouble. So welcome back to the conversation, by the way. Well, thanks, Pastor. Always a privilege. So let me follow your lead. The, um, the story is part of mission briefing number one from the Fellowship of His Sufferings. And in this, our listeners might be thinking first that it does mention what you could call either a cultural shift or a loss of culture, actually, um, in the West. Cass um, is, as I think we may have mentioned last time, just an extraordinarily impactful bioethicist, among other things. And uh, he's also a religious practicing Jewish person. So it's very interesting uh, what he highlights here. And it's, I think, quite absolutely unforgettable. So here it is. This is an excerpt from um, his Princeton speech or presentation, A More Perfect Human, The Promise and Peril of Modern Science uh, from 2005. The question before us is not the goodness of science and medicine, but the goodness of looking to science and medicine as the solution for the human condition, for the relief and salvation of man's estate. Having offered in advance this sincere refutation of possible charges that what follows next is anti-science, I now proceed forthwith to articulating the perils of such an orientation. So his thought there is if I can paraphrase, uh, science is good at what it does, which has to do with certain features of the natural world. But when it comes to understanding the human condition for which I think the hallmark is suffering, actually, uh, science is impotent and completely inadequate. Uh, my colleagues in the science department at my university say, that overreach of science could be called scientism, uh, which would mean seeking salvation for anything actually by means of science for the human race. The first two images from the exhibit pose the problem and set the stage for all my reflections, Cass continues. The glass man and the photographs of the survivors of the First World War. The exhibit opens with the stunning glass man first displayed at the German Hygiene Museum in Dresden in 1930. Though many of us have become familiar with transparent models of the human body, they are today widely marketed as science toys for school children. It is, a, it is difficult to exaggerate the excitement that those original models created. 
For the first time, the common man could glimpse a lifelike model of the insides, organ by organ, artery by artery, nerve by nerve, seeing with illuminated brilliance all the parts that made him run. Far from looking ashamed or diminished by this anatomizing invasion of his inner being, the glass man stands fitly and proudly, arms uplifted in a gesture of triumphant appeal for heavenly applause, a model of human perfection, not to say apotheosis. Moreover, this perfect man clearly came not from the hand of God, but from an even more perfect man, the scientific and medical visionary, who would someday soon help mankind collectively achieve the healthful perfection here modeled in glass. Make no mistake, this is serious business. Hmm. For the glass man was willy-nilly the emblem of a new religion. In place of the God who became man, we have here the man become as God. In place of the suffering Christ, arms stretched in crucifixion, we have the impervious glass man, arms elevated in self-exaltation. And creatively behind the scene, in place of a God, who it is said, sent his son, who would, through his own suffering, take away the sins of the world. We have the scientific savior who would take away the sin of suffering altogether. The glass man in loco crucifixus, in place of the crucified one, is the perfect icon for salvific science. It's after this unforgettable picture that Cass provides that he talks about the Weimar science behind the Nazi Holocaust and points out there that these were the folks who brought into the conversation the notion of life unworthy of life. Um, I've described this as an outcome today of what we should recognize as death on demand for lives that we, for one reason or another, don't consider worth living, physician-assisted suicide, abortion, euthanasia in all of its uh, horrible formulations. Um, that's considered what politically expect, expected, acceptable, and has even been legalized as we know. Yeah, and Cass is not, this is just as you were giving that picture, I mean, the, the, replacing the crucifix with this glass sculpture. And Cass is not a Christian. He's, he's Jewish. Yes. And yet he's able to recognize sort of the, the effect of the, on anthropology and ethics of having a crucifix as the picture of humanity. I mean, the picture of a true man is Jesus. And if you replace that with with a scientific see-through created model or something, then now that that shift is is profound. I, it's just, it, it, this is just it's a, this is maybe a side thing, but Dr. Schultz, you that you um you keep pulling me back to this 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 challenging thought for myself, and which is that uh, that Jesus is universal, that Christianity is universal, and and you know seeing a a Jewish ethicist being able to reflect on the power of the crucifix and the danger when that's no longer our, our picture is, is another reminder of that. Yeah, I think, by the way, Professor Kess would, would remind us if he were in the conversation that this is uh, in large part because of his background in the liberal arts. So he's a, a humanities guy for all of his medical and scientific credentials. 
um, that shows up in just about every one of his books. And he is um, extremely honest about the human condition. And I would also say, though I know this sounds a little funny, he's, he has a book on Genesis uh, that was the fruit of some classes he had with students, a, a class of his own choosing at the University of Chicago. And I know this sounds funny for me to say this. Um, it's quite a marvelous contemporary reflection on Genesis with only one thing missing. And that's the golden thread of the Messiah stuff from the first gospel about the woman seed who would crush Satan's head all the way through the promises to Judah. Um, you know, but if, if, you can, <laughs> if you can supply that yourself, um, it's quite a push into the text of Genesis, which I like. But I mean, just look at that. This is a very honest, I wouldn't say disinterested, but a very honest person immersed in bioethics, immersed in understanding humanity, who says, uh, we have really conducted a, a pretty terrible rummage sale. Uh, it's been a very bad revolution to get rid of Christ the crucified and replace him with an ideal of our own making. Mm. Mm. And, that, and that ideal is what the perfect man, the healthy man, the man without suffering, which maybe gets to the, the, our, our first point, which is, and you mentioned it already, is that the human condition on this side of Eden is suffering. Um, could you dig into that a little bit more? And, and maybe just also, if you could, if you wouldn't mind bringing in a couple of the Nietzsche threads from our previous conversation and how that, how that ties into that. Oh, I'll do my best. Feel free to push me back to some more of the Nietzsche connections if sure. I'm missing some of the stuff you're concerned about. So <clears throat> um, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to say that taking the lead from Cass, he said that science was aiming to eliminate the sin of suffering altogether. It, it simply is not acceptable. And I don't think it should be acceptable to any one of us um, to think that science is going to eliminate suffering and then adjust our ethics or our way of conducting life or our way of killing ourselves somehow in view of that completely undemonstrated um, promise. So scientism, reaching at least back, all the way back to Rene Descartes, as I think we've mentioned in conversation before, really does set out to eliminate suffering from the human condition. Here's an important point. We still suffer. And, and this notion that it's all going to be taken care of in the future does nothing but nothing for the immortal souls. I mean, by that, all human beings, body and soul, who suffer today. Um, it's it's um, very unlike the promises of God in scripture, where he shows by keeping his promises throughout the millennia, that he is trustworthy to keep his promises for the future. And at any rate, you know, here we are in the midst of suffering. Um, I think we also may also be considering that to make the effort to eliminate suffering, let's say from our theology and from our philosophy and from our thinking about life today amounts to many terrible things, including killing off suffering people. I mean, that that's the, um, that's the point that Cass is making in that section of his Princeton lectures, that modern science or people leaning on modern science 
are actually getting rid of the embarrassment, the uncomfortability, discomfort of suffering, disadvantaged, disabled, elderly people by getting rid of those people. So um, it, it really is kind of a life unworthy of life ad campaign, so to speak. Now, uh, you, you mentioned um, Nietzsche, who we took a fairly careful look at last time. Friedrich Nietzsche is somebody who, as we mentioned to our, our viewers, suffered a great deal during his life. He also is somebody who was baptized and grew up at least initially as a Lutheran. So he knows his scripture quite well too. When he takes on suffering, I think this is the way, roughly speaking, Nietzsche is doing it. He finds suffering to be too terrible to, to bear. And yet at the same time, he is not willing to accept the passivity of suffering and then the word of God. So Nietzsche wants to deal with suffering with his resoluteness by bulking up his will. And that's why we were talking a bit about will to power in our last discussion as well. So I think that what Nietzsche does uh, to simplify is he is wrestling with God, at least initially in his writing. We hear him quoting uh, the stuff, so to speak, about the suffering Christ. And then he rejects that because he thinks that makes people weak. It makes people like him who are suffering weak. And his solution instead is actually a personalized um, concierge version of the Ebermensch, of the transhuman or the uh, superhuman. And he feels you have to make yourself into such a resolute, uh, I'm going to say superhero cartoon character, in effect. And, and as a consequence, then, he is so focused on his own resolve, on his own determination, um, that uh, he, he rejects Jesus, who, um, as we're going to discuss today, is the only interpretation of suffering. Uh, suffering is something that is quite, um, quite clearly not self-interpreting. It is a, a horrible, painful, well, suffering experience, which we don't want to have. Then Nietzsche simply offers absolutely the wrong uh, prescription for that as is the case with death on demand. If you're suffering, kill yourself. Um, what, what kind of philosophy of life is that? What kind of treatment of redeemed human beings is that? That is exactly what Cass was worried about, to replace the suffering God who suffered for us all, to replace him with our own resolve in the face of suffering, not to give in, to you know, have it my way, um, that's what's got us into this position. It, it seems like there's a, this is a demonic and ideological move is that so you can end, um, you can have no theft in society if there's no property, <laughs> or there could be no adultery if there's no marriage, or there could be no lies if there's no truth, and there could be no blasphemy if there's no God, and there can be no murder if there's no life. So, so, so you sort of, you're like, well, we can have a, we can have a society that's perfect. No one will ever break the 10 commandments. Uh, right. Which, which ranks right up, right up there with, if we just get rid of the prisons, we wouldn't have crime in our streets. 
<laughs> or yeah yeah and, and so here so and so this move of well if you don't want suffering it's easy get rid of the sufferer yes. but this is a denial of this point which i so there's two things that i that i want to maybe push on a little bit is that it assumes okay if i get rid of the sufferer i get rid of suffering this misses the point that that what humanity is suffering it, there's there's an essential i mean it's not essential to our humanity but it is essential to our experience of our humanity after the fall um that there is no there's no escaping suffering it's not like the normal life is a life of peace without suffering and then suffering is something strange that happens to you peter says don't think that don't think that the suffering part is the strange part um it this is this is what it means to live as children of adam and eve right and as as we are probably going to discuss as we've often talked about you know in our work serving our pastors in doxology uh, it also is the case that god has visited you might as well say instituted suffering for all of humanity um out of out of the hope that this will be an opportunity for us to hear, um, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest his word about his suffering son. And thus, that's the title of the book. Um, thus will be taken up into the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, everything that's is short-circuited when we, uh, of course, when you want to pre-censor Christ and his word out of this discussion in a, in a perverse sense, there really is nothing else to do with suffering than other than to kill yourself, except for, except for the fact that you have no guarantee that you are ending your suffering by ending your biological life. Uh, in fact, the weight of hundreds of resurrections, um, I'm going to say empirically vetted in Holy Scripture, including especially the resurrection of our Lord himself on Easter Sunday, um, those all demonstrate that we do continue after our biological deaths and it is, uh, I'm, I think your word is exactly appropriate. It's a demonic lie to suggest to people that the way to deal with suffering is through death. Hmm. Well, uh, you, you put something else. I mean, so that would just, God has instituted suffering. And we'll, I, I think we want to get to that and underline that because that's a hard thing to say. And we, we say theologically that God is not the cause of evil. And yet, so we, we need to make that distinction. Um, to, to to because we do want to say the lord brings evil the um, and and that we receive our suffering uh from the hands of god we but but uh, but before we you something else was really clear i just want to highlight this is that and i and i hadn't seen it until you said it is that so we all we find ourselves in the midst of suffering and so then the quite all of just that's just a human condition we're suffering and then the question is where do we look for hope which is just this very obvious thing. And science is there saying, you look, dear humanity, you look to me for hope, and I will alleviate your suffering. And as a culture, we said, right. And that's simply a false religion. But, 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 but we're trusting the promise of science to deliver us from suffering. And as you've pointed out, not only has that promise never been kept, but it's been demonstrated over and over to be a lie. <laughs> I mean, the suffering continues to compound. And the more, what, the more science 
advances, the more acute suffering gets. And so it's showing itself to be an empty promise, but it's a form of worship to trust that promise of scientism or technological advance or whatever. Right. So science is not the enemy here. Um, it's rather that when it, it is outside of its boundary, it is a um, threatening trespasser. So science is fine within its boundaries, which has to do with the natural universe as it is. I would offer the thought that it's really not very helpful at all in terms of anthropology, um, because though we do have a physical aspect to us, we first of all only know that because of our spiritual dimension. And, and secondly, um, I think we have no problems in the face of suffering, remembering that we are physical creatures, right? right. Um, even though I've been at some pains to point out that suffering is not the same thing as pain, suffering is our human reflection on the wrongness, the, well, um, I've described this um, using another, another source actually as the shout of no to what's happening in our lives. But then, as we were just saying, if you take Christ out, you're taking out the only source, not just of comfort, but of interpreting what suffering means for the human condition. If you get rid of Christ the crucified, we are left with the suffering, and we're still suffering, but we don't understand it. That's why Nietzsche, in a way, is so uh, frustrating, because he, he knows about Christ the crucified, but he considers that inadequate, or perhaps he just gets into a, um, you know, a fatal, uh, a fatal dive trying to fly his life, um, and and just can't get out of that nose dive. Well, I want to I want to pick up on on two things that you said there. Work forward that, that. So one is this distinction between suffering and pain, and just to kind of make sure that we have so physical pain can be a form of suffering, but suffering itself is a much bigger picture. How, how would you just draw the line between those two things? And that helps us sort out the vocation of science, right? Yeah, thanks. So in, in a certain sense, it's hard to draw the line, especially when we're in the midst of suffering, because you get both the pain and the reaction against it together. So during suffering, um, very often people are in pain. And at the same time, we are reacting against that pain. So the person from whom I got the notion of the shout of no is Nicholas Woltersdorf, who wrote a book some years ago, uh, Lament for a Son at the Sudden Death of His Son Eric in a Mountain Climbing Accident. And Woltersdorf said, suffering is the shout of no by nerve and gut and gland and heart to pain, to injustice, and to all sorts of things. So let's say that pain is a function of our physical being. We experience pain as other animals would, lower animals would. But in addition to that, being the logos, the language beings, if you prefer um, rational beings, um, we are able to think about the pain or think about the pain of others. And that's what suffering is. So Wolterstorff is, you know, he's a very gifted philosopher, but he's not doing the philosophical thing there. He's catching the phenomenon, the experience of suffering uh, rather poetically, instead of just trying to analyze uh, the stuffing out of it. So 
he, he is, um, he's saying that suffering is our revolt against things being not what they were in Eden and not what they're going to be in heaven. Suffering is um, a reaction to the world not being perfect. Now, at the same time, because as you pointed out before, we are in the fallen world, we're in the world after Adam and Eve's insurgency in the Garden of Eden, um, God has seen fit. In fact, according to Ephesians 1, he was thinking and had uh, set his mind on this even before creation, but God has seen fit to send his only begotten son to share in our suffering. And then here comes the part that's often left out, I think, and to uptake us into his suffering with him. That's St. Paul's phrase from Philippians 3, to participate in the fellowship of his sufferings. And to state the obvious, that can't happen abstractly. That, that, can't, you know, that can't be brought about by a, by a philosophy professor in, in a university class or something. So it, it is real life. It is part of the human condition. And by saying that, we're also saying it's unavoidable. So part of Nietzsche's problem, part of our problem, is that we don't want to be passive in suffering. We want to be able to deal with it. Uh, the problem is that suffering is the premier real life existential condition of passivity. There is no choice. Whether you want it or not, here it is. Um, like with Job, right? Is, does that have to do with, so you mentioned before, suffering is not self-interpreting. Does that right. have to do with that? What I don't understand that language of. Oh, sure. Thanks for asking. So um, we can take a related example. So if we think about grieving, right? People, I think that all people grieve at the death of a loved one. So um, we could talk about grieving at length, but we're, you know, we're working on suffering right now. So let's just say that you can have people, I suggest in uh, my book, The Problem of Suffering, that you can look at an example from Tolstoy, right? Prince Andrei from uh, War and Peace dies. He's a central character in the book. And all sorts of people are coming to his funeral. Everybody is crying. Um, I, I read on the uh, a review of the translation from Russian to English that, that Paul and I read together that that same Russian word is used for crying in each and every case. But we learn that they're all crying for different reasons. The older man there is crying because he knows he's going to be next. Um, the women who had kind of fallen in love with Prince Andre are crying because now there's no chance for marrying him. Um, other people are crying because other people are sad, you see? Um, so it's uh, grieving is not self-interpreting. Everybody grieves but we have different reasons for our grieving. You could even ask sometimes, do we have the right reason for grieving? Uh, if you remember that our word grieve is related to gravity, um, are, we, are we attracted to the right reason for grieving? Um, and I talk about that in other uh, discussions. So then we come to suffering and let's say it, suffering is a 
terrible thing, a terrorizing thing. Uh, it, it's visceral and it's spiritual. It is fully human. There's a physical side to this. There's, there's the soul side to this and, and everything. But it is not self-interpreting in this way. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean that there is an automatic come along that you understand what the purpose of suffering is. In fact, I think it's so opaque that if you don't use scripture, if you, if you refuse to hear, to read, to have scripture read to you, you are not ever going to understand the purpose of suffering. I think, by the way, this is a parallel to um, understanding what's going on in Psalm 19. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim his handiwork, and then David goes on to write, but there's no voice, there's no sound. And then the conclusion of the psalm is all about God's word. So the heavens do declare the glory of God, the skies do proclaim his handiwork, but you're never going to know that without the work of scripture. And that is certainly, and, and even uh, more widely attested, I think, in scripture, that is certainly the case with the phenomenon the inescapable ton of bricks on your head phenomenon of suffering. If you don't want to have Christ the crucified the way he presents himself in scripture, you're not going to understand. Also, let me just tuck this in. That doesn't make suffering easier. Um, it's not like, you know, you suddenly get the meaning of it. You got the intellectual understanding and now it's all, it all goes away. Like, yeah. I don't know, some sort of anesthetic. It does not work that way either. Mm -hmm. It is inescapable, and it's inescapable, I believe, for a purpose. As, as I've written elsewhere uh, in the suffering we've experienced in our family, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, uh, there's just no place else to go. No place else to go but to lament and cry to God and, and ask him, tell me, right? Which is, of course, what the scriptures, especially I think those Psalms of Lament are all about. I see a parallel. Let me see. I'm just gonna. I'm working this out in my own mind. Um, that that. So so for example, but what if we took the Lord's Supper, and we say this is truly the body and blood of Jesus, but it must the words must be there to yes. explain not only what it is to to speak what it is, but also to give the benefit of what it is given for the forgiveness of sins. Or, or Luther right. even says in the large catechism that the death of Jesus wouldn't benefit anybody unless his, that promise is preached to us. So th these things are true things that are happening, but the, mm, the, the meaning of them or the, even the benefit of them has to come through conversation, through, through speaking, through words. Yes. And in, in the case of suffering, Jesus' own words, just like in Holy Communion. Um, so here's, here's a uh, kind of a philosophy thing that I, I know you're going to love. So um, in writing about Anselm's argument for God's existence being self-evident from the concept of God as that then which nothing greater can be thought, which I would really love to talk about sometime here too. But um, Thomas Aquinas says this, look, a thing can be self-evident in one of two ways. Either it can be self-evident in itself and to us, or it can be self-evident in itself 
and not to us. Now, <laughs> that the heavens proclaim the glory of God is a self-evident truth, but that doesn't guarantee that we know that this is a self-evident truth. It's, by the way, a similar thing with the Declaration of Independence, which is another conversation, but we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That is, or those are, self-evident truths, but you can't know that, or I suppose you could say people refuse to know that unless and until it's made self-evident to us. Now, I think that's why scripture is, is really necessary there too. But let me uh, come back to our, our topic. So suffering, when Job was going through suffering, when the man blind from birth was going through suffering, when the apostles, you know, after our Lord's resurrection and ascension were suffering, uh, when our brothers and sisters in the faith, even now throughout the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ, by the tens of thousands are suffering persecution, right? That suffering is not self-explanatory in itself, you see, but it requires Christ not just to unlock the meaning, but to bring us up into him, because the purpose of suffering is to, to be joined in fellowship with his sufferings, and that only happens through the word of God, just like Holy Communion only happens through that almighty word of God, which Jesus gives us in scripture. I want to I push on that a little bit on just this idea of, because we mentioned before that, that Nietzsche has, is invested in the meaninglessness of suffering. Um, is that, can you follow that through today also? It, like, is there, uh, so, so suffering doesn't bring its own meaning so the meaning has to come from from god or i suppose you could import meaning from some other mythology or something like that to try to explain it and you would come up with a bad meaning um is is there would our for example death on demand ethicists be interested in maintaining the meaninglessness of suffering in other words, they want to cut off the word of God that comes to give meaning to suffering so that suffering can just be raw suffering and the occasion then of bringing death. D does that make sense? Or I I'm just interested in the, in the sort of modern state of, of people trying, like, here's suffering and here comes the meaning from the Psalms or from Jesus. And they're like, no, you can't. That's an illegitimate move to try to import meaning to suffering. We, we have to keep it separate. Right. Well, so there are what, what we should recognize as constraints here. So why exactly in, you know, one of the uses of God's law applies to all people, just as Jesus really died for everybody, just as Jesus is Lord and God over everybody, whether they acknowledge it or not. One of the constraints is um, that we are not to take other human lives. Also, we understand that that means uh, our times are not in our own hands either. So in order to uh, get a glimpse of what's going on here, there is a violation and insurgency, I, as I've said, against 
Western culture to encourage this mindset of death on demand. So, you know, Western culture with the Hippocratic Oath and with the influence of scripture. Now, the, the, um, the use of demon before is still kind of kicking around my head from your mention of that. I read a recent article, I think, in, in, uh, in First Things that, that said a demon is by definition invisible and unseeable, but is known by the effect of its actions. So the, the deal here is not to see the demons and, and the hosts of Satan you know, fighting against us. Our job, I think, is to look at what's going on. And therefore, I think that you know, your pastoral sensibilities are, are just extraordinarily sharp on that point. It is demonic stuff, and we are not making this up. Right, this is absolutely terrible stuff to be doing to people and to ourselves. Now, I also want to emphasize that I am not saying that Christ's crucifixion provides an intellectual solution to suffering. Jesus doesn't take the suffering away. He comes to us in our suffering. And, and I've been pretty deliberate, I think, in my vocabulary because the words of the Bible are God's words because they are what we Lutheran thinkers love to share with anybody who will listen, means of grace. Because the personal God personally talks to us through his word. It's also the case that Jesus is revealing himself to us and is taking us up into his suffering. That's what's happening in those Psalms of Lament. It is not a merely intellectual discovery. It is a body, soul, and mind. It is a, a will, emotion, and intellect renovation of us that God is doing in the middle of our suffering. Interesting thought. The hour when God's word is being used is very similar to the actual real presence sharing that's happening in Holy Communion, isn't it? Um, except it's, it's over, if you understand me, kind of it's a long haul sacrament. So the means of grace are with us for a, uh, the whole hall of the chemotherapy, the, um, the chronic illness that we're going through, um, the anticipation and the experience of the pain and, and so forth. Thank you for that. I, um, so just to sort of gather up in a, in a bunch here, a number of the things that you've talked about. So suffering is, is different than physical pain it doesn't, it's not self-interpreting, nor is it avoidable. Uh, it's, it's that it's a, it's a part of the human condition at East of Eden, which, and it's a whole human condition. So body and, and spirit. So the, the mind looks at suffering, not only in yourself, but in others. And like you said, no. And, and boy, you told that story. I was of taking, picking up your children from school and going to the hospital because your daughter was nearing the end of her life and your son in the front said no that i mean that's you had that experience too i, I can't imagine this and and our secular approach to suffering then is to say okay we we think suffering is bad so we want to end it so we want to we're going to end it by ending the sufferer 
but but the church's reaction is very different and this is i i want to sort of change then the focus from looking out at the way that the culture handles suffering to how the church has handled suffering and how it should handle suffering and and there's a gap between those two things and that gap that that failure of the church to to rightly teach lament i suppose to to rightly handle suffering is is the is perhaps the more important point because and there's a cause and effect here that i think is really interesting has the church's failure given room for the culture to come and do all this get away with all this stuff but you point out what so theologically why we say the lord is not the source of evil or the cause of evil that the the cause of evil is the devil and and the fallen will of man but as far as can i say a word to that yeah please yeah thanks um so it is the case that god is the cause of evil in many instances in the old testament now what what you and i are are navigating and what we're enjoying in in this substantial conversation brian is we're sort of trying to triangulate right try to understand the usage of these terms and we are especially schooled as lutheran pastors in doing that in the terms of scriptural usage so we do have have a thing or rather i think we've kind of lost it but we used to have this in philosophy where we talk about moral suffering mm-hmm. or um natural so, sorry moral evil or natural evil now moral evil was discussed as the evil that people do to others so murder would be a matter of moral evil in which the murderer is the one who's bringing the evil in natural evil this was the old school way of talking about things where there was no human agent so that could only be what the insurance people used to call an act of god mm-hmm. Now, when you and I are using the term, and I I think probably our listeners would agree, uh, we want to be sure in which sense we're using that word evil. And and just for some of your, and aren't they all, very sharp listeners, uh, I am aware that this may come back to God with the moral evil question is in, why doesn't he snuff out the the murderer before the murderer commits the murder and that sort of thing. That's that's another kind of discussion. But um, God does evil in the Old Testament. Our, our newer English translations have sanded this down and eroded it and changed it to pretty close to, uh, you know, difficulties befell Job, uh, uh, problems or, or something. But actually, in the last chapter of Job, you and, I, you and I have talked about this a lot. In the last chapter of Job, in what you could call the after action report for that book, God had Job write this down, that his friends and relatives came and comforted him for all the evil that the lord had brought on him that's um that's that hebrew word ra or ra and we know from the opening of job that god was the cause for job's suffering now for for our listeners who haven't been with us for earlier conversations um what you know what we're doing here is we're trying to be extremely attentive to god's word and we're also working very hard to pay attention to the way Luther pushed us back into God's word. So Luther actually says this in his commentary on Psalm 6, the first of the seven penitential Psalms. 
that when things, when evil happens to us, the first thing we must do, according to the psalm, is run to God and accept this as coming from God, even if the devil's involved, even if the world is involved, as in the case of Job, God is behind it. So there is an important sense in which we must say God causes evil. God brought, and I, I prefer to use suffering um, for evil here, but um, because I think it suits our, our modern conversation a bit better. Um, so the suffering that happens to us does have God behind it. Adam and Eve didn't suffer, and we, their children's children's children, don't suffer because of some automatic happening after the insurgency and the fall into sin. This happens according to Genesis 3 and Romans 8, by the way, because God himself inflicted ra or suffering on his entire creation. Oh, that's great. I, 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 I appreciate that. We, so this, the, the way that our Lutheran confessions would teach us to confess is God is not the cause of sin, which would be yes. that moral evil. Right. That, that's and right. So, and that's the nice distinction there. I, I noticed this in the prayer of the church from the old hymnal, the TLH. Yes. Yeah, it says all who are in trouble, want sickness, anguish of labor, peril of death, or any other adversity, especially those who are suffering for thy names and for thy truth's sake, comfort, O God, with thy Holy Spirit, that they may receive and acknowledge their afflictions as the manifestation of thy fatherly will. I don't know if we pray that anymore. It's not there anymore. <laughs> It's not there in our in our current generation hymnals. And I, I think that's the idea of what we're getting after is that what, what what Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall I receive good from the hands of the Lord and not raw? Yes. Evil. So that we receive everything from the from the Lord's hands, even suffering and affliction and trouble. We receive it as a gift from God. I'm going to say especially. Um, now, again, it's not that, that we have to, for goodness sakes, uh, go around saying, our God is an awesome God. Thank goodness that you're suffering so badly from that cancer, right? Uh, this, that, that's just horrible. In fact, that's, that's pretty sinful uh, to talk that way. But my point or our point is that, number one, you have no business terminating the lives of people who are suffering, obviously, when you don't even know what the purpose of suffering is. If it is part of the human condition, by which I mean, it's inescapable, you know, part of the human condition is that, that we have to breathe. Part of the human condition is that we grow old and die. Um, part of the human condition is that we're immortal beings. But um, if, if in this, this uh, mania to try to avoid suffering, we are first of all not ending the suffering person, as we've said several times, but we are also defying God as definitely as Nietzsche did in his writings against Christ the crucified. Hmm. Now, so, so we as a church, so we've, we, we have failed to do this. So, Maybe and 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 you bring in this book on the Reformation of suffering as a as a I, I so now I, reading your briefing now I have to go to this book but he he'll make this conclusion too that we have 
what that the Reformation itself, the Lutheran Reformation, amplified the biblical doctrine of suffering in a very helpful way, but that has been lost for generations now. Yes. So take us down that road a bit, if you would. Yeah, so uh, we're both leaning on the um, very welcome, deep scholarship of Ronald Rickers. He is not the only one um, who's been writing about this for some time. Um, also, Oswald Baer in Germany, from whom a lot of us as Lutheran pastors and theologians have benefited. He's been doing this too. Um, but the point here is, as Ritger says, number one, um, the way that a pastor and a church address the matter of suffering is a litmus used to be a litmus test for their confessional identity. Mm. So, you know, um, I suppose we can just kid about this a little bit. The fact that you and I have, have Concordia Triglata um, on our bookshelves and that we use it and it's got a lot of writing in it, it's well-thumbed, that's an indication to people visiting our studies that we are confessional Lutherans, right? And the, the terminology we use and the fact that, that we teach Luther's catechism and so forth, the ecumenical creeds, the doctrine of Lord's Supper that was coming up before, all of that. But what Ritgers points out is about four centuries ago in that first generation or a little bit more after the Lutheran Reformation, it was how we handled pastoral care of suffering people that gave witness to our confessional commitments to scripture. Confessional as in what God says we endeavor to say, what God says in the Bible and what our Lutheran confessions have reiterated from the Bible this is where we take our stand. This is what we believe, teach, and confess. Um, so without pastoral theology having a as its centerpiece ministry to people who are suffering with the word of the suffering Lord, the suffering servant, the suffering Christ, the crucified one, we are not doing what we are meant to do as Christ's church on earth. Or let me say it more carefully, as Christ's churches on earth. We're, we're just not doing it. Ritgers has an absolutely arresting pile of evidence for this. Half of his book is footnotes. Uh, it, it's just astonishing. I've, he's also been good enough to talk with me a little bit by email. He seems to be a very unassuming, um, humble scholar, but boy, is he a scholar. And, and I think when in his concluding six pages, he says, do you know it's plausible that the reason that people in modernity do not find Christianity at all plausible themselves is because we have failed to teach them how to suffer and die in Christ. That is an indictment that I think we should take upon ourselves, grab the sackcloth and ashes, and admit to what you were just pointing out and what you know we've been talking about a lot over the years. We have fallen down. Uh, that's too gentle a word, on our responsibility to teach people how to suffer in Christ and how to die in the Lord. One interesting bit of um, scholarship or evidence on that is that slip in our Lutheran liturgies. Instead of praying that God would grant us a good death, instead of that, you know, um, astonishing, it, it, it's, it's weird that it's astonishing to us, prayer that you just read for us before, um, we're, we're avoiding the topic. 
Hmm. I, I, I think we, uh, so I think you're right. We have to own it. You, so, and he goes on to say, I mean, just to, and, and this connection is maybe, I mean, not a hundred percent connect, but it's plausible to imagine that what, that the church's failure to teach lament is the reason why we have Roe v. Wade. Yes. The church's failure to teach lament, to train in lament is the reason why we have euthanasia in at least a contributing reason. Mm -hmm. We didn't do what we were supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have the intellectual horsepower to do this, but I think that it, it may be plausible that our failure to teach lament, to teach the meaning of suffering in Christ, to bring uh, those Psalms and, and um, all of the stuff from the Apostle Paul about suffering to people around our churches and to in and in our churches, that may be the reason for the decline of Western culture. So the, the centerpiece of Western culture is not only that we have shared moral judgments passed from one generation to the next, not only that we've done that in Greek forms of thinking, as Roger Scruton says, but as he also points out, that we had this biblical, the Hebrew and Greek scripture content that was part of our great conversation until modernity. So here we are in modernity, and I think at the risk of overdoing it, though I don't think I am, um, we are still failing in this as a church. Our science should say, you know, are you suffering? Are you facing death? We're the people who can help you with that. We're the people who can show you that Christ is with you and show you how through his means of grace to be with Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. We don't get rid of sufferers. We show you the meaning of suffering. and We suffer with you in Christ. I know there's going to be more on that. I mean, next mission briefing is going to uh, unfold that oh, yeah. profoundly. But you, you walk through Psalm 22 as the model psalm of lament. Well, is that, would, you, is that, would that be your first call? I mean, so to repent and, and then... And then next step is to read Psalm 22? <laughs> or I think, so. I think Psalm 22 would be the means of repentance. So um, let's just remind our listeners that to repent um, can, in a broad sense, mean to rethink. Uh, Plato actually uses the, what will be the New Testament Greek word metanoia for repentance. He actually uses that in talking about rethinking uh, your mindset or your worldview. Um, but repent in the careful biblical sense that you and I talk about it and, um, you know, please the Lord that we live out in our lives, um, has to do with contrition, smiting the conscience through the knowledge of sin. That's the first part. That's from our confessions, right? So mm -hmm. that's the first part. Um, the, the terrorizing of God's law. Maybe some of us are feeling it right now that we haven't done what Christ specifically gave us to do for people should terrify our consciences, our consciousnesses. But then the second part of repentance is faith in Christ, not having some sort of strong faith in something, but faith in Christ himself, the real person in which we find the two natures of God and man eternally and inseparably welded together. Um, so, we do need to repent, but the means of repentance are again the means of grace. So we can take it in that 
broad sense, we need to rethink. We certainly do. And we need to, well, as Luther said, you know, live a life of repentance in, in that first of the 95 theses. So uh, we do need to use this, these Psalms of Lament. I think we need to paste in those chapters from the Luther, uh, pages from the Lutheran hymnal back into our current copy of Lutheran worship. Hmm. I, th I think that we pastors have, have been failing in our duty not to have regular sermons and Bible classes about lamenting and bringing the words of the suffering savior to people. And I do think that the quintessential Psalm of Lament is Psalm 22, though um, by, by the count of, of some of the Hebrew scholars that I've benefited from, and I think a little bit from my own reading, somewhere, somewhere over one third of all the 150 Psalms classify as Psalms of Lament. Um, so those, those need to be used. And then um, I think what we'd hand along, right, is, um, and maybe, you know, maybe you can uh, find an opportunity to do this, or, or we could set aside one time just to go through Psalm 22. The Psalm itself, as, as I've written, uptakes us into Christ's suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus breathed those words in when he learned Psalm 22 in his state of humiliation, growing up at Mary's knee, he breathed it out for all humanity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on Calvary's cross? And that's, that's in the atmosphere. I mean, his, his words are out there so that we can breathe that in and then breathe back his very own words to him when we are suffering. We can breathe out those words at bedside so other people can breathe them in as they are facing suffering. But have we done that? That was our initial point here. Hmm. And I, I think we, we have not. It's not part of our regular um, practice. I, I'd also just toss this in here. I know you didn't ask it, but I think that um, as much as, as I love and have benefited from our systematic Lutheran theology, I think it's high time for kind of a brief Lutheran systematic theology that begins with Psalm 22 instead of with creation, that ends with Psalm 22, and that has to address Psalm 22 in every article of doctrine. Now, if we do that, you can be sure it's going to be Christological. Um, and if we were to do that, that would satisfy the need that you and I bring to any of our systematic studies, right? Um, theology, exists for the purpose of pastoral care. Hmm. And, and we, we need to be, be more blatant and, well, more suffering-centered, which is to say more Christological in these latter days. It's, we have this, you know, people say, why? I mean, Jesus himself, why have you forsaken me? There's no answer to the question. I mean, we know why the, the God was forsaking Christ on the cross that he was bearing there the sins of the world, but he doesn't know why in the midst of it. And he knows, and, and that's part of it. I mean, if that question would be taken away, if the answer to the question, why, if Jesus was praying, in other words, not my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But just praying, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. That's very different. Maybe that's pain, but not suffering. 
that's the why is the the suffering part of it, right? Well, at any rate, the way the way that as Luther says, God wants us to come to Him to to realize it's all from Him. The way that God has given us to lament is not abstract, intellectual, homework-like stuff. It is in media race. It's it's in the middle of the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know what though, um, it <laughs> this reminds me right about now. I know I'm I'm on a the edge of the cliff here because I, I'm haunted by a phrase from Sven Kierkegaard in the 19th century. He says, the last thing that we need is another professor of suffering, <laughs> right? Which means the last thing we need is a chalk talk or a whiteboard talk about all this. So you know, everybody comes in, let's ask the important questions and then we'll satisfy all of that. And then you, you all leave now, the class is over and uh, bring some other homework for tomorrow. It's rather the case that Psalm 22 is always there and it is there long haul. So the Psalm itself is, I want to shy away from saying the answer, you know, in the sense of mm-hmm. I've answered the homework assignment. Now tell me what else I have to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it is, it is the lesson, the, the lifelong lesson. It is the medium through which, as I've been saying, we're taken up into Christ's sufferings. Christ prayed Psalm 22. I think he prayed the whole thing. Psalm, he prayed Psalm 22 on the cross. He has exhaled that with some of his last breaths before committing his spirit into his father's hand so that we can inhale these very words. And in the course of Psalm 22, which must be prayed, not just talked about in some professorial way, right? In the praying, in the doing of Psalm 22, God cruciforms our thinking to be sure, but also our emotions and our will. I think um, it's very likely that Nietzsche's major failure in uh, dismissing Christ as the crucified was that he couldn't or wouldn't bring himself to pray through the Psalms of Lament. In other words, he couldn't bring himself to be praying Psalm 22 or Psalm 6 or psalms, so forth and so on, for at least 50 of those psalms. But that's, of course, where God meets us. Uh, psalms is the most dialogical book of the scriptures, right? This is where the most obvious conversation is taking place, from God to us, and then in God's own words, from us with God. Um, so maybe this is a just a huge problem with literacy in the psalms. But the way to see how mission critical that is, is to consider that pastoral care and the raison d'etre, the reason for existence for our churches, is plausibly not, if you understand me here, it's not to do an evangelism program. It's to minister to people in the midst of their suffering with the words of Christ himself. You know, I realized when I was a baby pastor and I would go and visit the old timers at home. And they're saying, <laughs> hey, so, wait a minute there, old timers, come on. <laughs> I'd look at their Bibles. And they would, the Psalms would be all frayed and they would stick out. You know, that was the, that was their territory. They lived in the Psalms. And I always wondered about that because the Psalms were always so hard for me. I didn't. And, and that's the, I think that's that tension there. I was kind of, I, so I've got a theory. Uh, 
this is both with the problem of suffering and also the problem of once saved or no, no, uh, why some and not others. So the soteriological problem and the problem of suffering, that seems like the more ethical problem, maybe, but it's also theological is that there's, it's, um, it's a, there's a, it's like a seesaw. And on the one side of the seesaw is the human is, is reason, the human mind. And on the other side is the heart or the conscience. And on the seesaw is comfort and, or, or satisfaction, I should say. And the, and the point is that if you pull down to make it make sense, if you're answering the rational questions, then comfort is leaving the heart. So all the, all the attempts to actually answer the question of why some are saved and not others, you know, maybe grace is not universal. That's the Calvin answer. Or maybe our will plays a role of salvation. That's the free will Arminian answer. Or maybe everybody's saved. That's the universalist answer. They try to answer the problem. They abandon scripture. And also they abandon comfort. It like lifts comfort away. And so the same thing happens with the problem of suffering. Every attempt to answer it, maybe God is not omnipotent, or maybe God is not good, or maybe their suffering is an illusion or whatever. You're taking away one of the incongruent truths to make it satisfy the mind. All of that just lifts comfort away. So if I ever achieve a sort of mental or rational ease, then I've instituted a, a discomfort in the heart and the conscience. What do you think about that theory? Does that hold any water? Well, I think we need diagrams. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, so I... Um, or may, uh, maybe I'll say real simple like this. I think I heard Professor Pless say it like this. In the midst of suffering, we want a reason, and the Lord doesn't give us a reason. He gives us promises. Yeah, doesn't that doesn't that sound like the right pastoral tone for this this sort of thing, uh, which we're used to from John, right? Yeah. So, the, the um, what what I'd like to offer in here is that the problem is with the way we consider the problem. So, you know, if if we're thinking, this was part of the reason for for Kierkegaard's lambasting a professor of suffering, right? If we think of everything in terms of something that can be intellectually resolved and then we're set, that's absolutely the wrong thing to be, to the wrong mindset to come have with this. I, I do want to say that I am also not sure about what we mean by comfort. So my, my own experience with suffering, which was mostly you know, at the beds of my kids, um, is that th there's nothing comfortable going on. I, I should also mention, though, you know, this, this was certainly um, wrong and sinful on my part. There were times when, when my family has been suffering, uh, when our children were suffering and dying, where about the last thing I really wanted was to pray the Psalms or pray to God or even think about him. But, you know, thanks to the Lord, I didn't have any choice because I was a pastor. I had to, had to preach this stuff and so forth. And I don't mean to make light of this. I just, I'm just saying it's only the word. Right. It's only God's word that, that saves us here. Um, so I, I wonder if comfort is the right thing. But maybe, maybe we could use something like the notion of satisfaction or realization or something along those lines. And even after I've said that, I feel bad about saying there's no comfort because um, 
there is. It's just that it's not that that comfort is seesawing too. So that the, the thing to do is the thing to do, no matter how we are feeling at the moment. Um, and I, I don't mean to be insensitive and say, you know, just no matter what somebody is saying or how they're trying to get a little bit of sleep in the dead of night, you know, when maybe the pain medication is finally helping that you want to jump in and, and read 15 Psalms to them, you know, right there. Uh, but I, I think you take my point. So there is a, a belongingness, maybe a, a, maybe I should just agree. There's certainly a kind of comfort when God's words are at work on us, though not all the time. You know, we don't feel that all the time, but we are still being comforted. Somehow yeah. I'd like to be able to say that. Yeah, I, my, maybe my point is that as we, if we're seeking a reason, we're moving away from comfort. I, that would that's good. yeah that's good or 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 if we we think we will be satisfied with a merely intellectual solution yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right it's it's yeah. the same problem that you see when like you see the family after like a murderer who who murdered a child and now now they've been given a life sentence or they've been given they're going to be put to death and their justice has been has prevailed and they're and they come out and they're like it doesn't take the pain. Justice doesn't take the pain. They thought they were pursuing justice to try to find comfort or peace, peace maybe. And mm -hmm. there's no peace in justice. So, so there's no, there's the same sort of thing with the problem of suffering is that if I knew why I was suffering, that probably wouldn't help. <laughs> so, so if the Lord holds back the reason why, if he doesn't tell us why, then it's for our own good. That's, and that's his, that's his business. We're, we are to trust him in the midst of it. That's the, that's the whole exercise here, I think. Yes. Um, I love your pause. You're going to be well, so, you're going to gonna tell me I'm wrong in such a kind way. You could just do it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just like you. I'm very anxious to get this right. And I'm, I'm thinking of, of the folks that we're actually talking to here. So um, how about how about if we just would agree? Well, what we're looking for is not justice, but mercy in the midst of suffering. And I was thinking about um, Sheldon Van Auken, who was, a, I believe, a friend of C.S. Lewis. Van Auken wrote a book called, um, maybe it wasn't the title, but he used the term severe mercy to talk about God's mercy, severe mercy. So the phenomenon of suffering is a severe mercy hmm. when Christ's words, which is to say when Christ is being brought to the sufferer. The, the horror in this whole business, though, is, of course, for those like Nietzsche, alas, who reject Christ and his word in the midst of their lives of suffering. There is no other remedy to be had. This is, this is where the law and gospel get as stark as all get out. And quite frankly, where I think um, the need to reckon with God uh, becomes painfully clear. But it doesn't follow. See, remember, suffering is not self-interpreting, nor is it gospel in itself. Um, so it, things can go badly wrong, too. It can be you know, uh, like our Lord's parable of the sower in Matthew, where 
the seed grows up, but then it's choked out because of the, can we say the onfectum, the besieging character of life. Um, so the, the whole, the whole concern is to bring Christ and his word to suffering people. Also, by the way, all people do suffer. Yeah. That's great. I think your, I think your uh, suggestion is that next time, before we go to briefing three, we'll just do a deep dive into Psalm 22 and the other Psalms of lament. I think that'll be fantastic uh, on the way there. So thank you again for this conversation. It was really wonderful. It's always wonderful, Dr. Schultz. So thank you for your time and for your insight and your work here. If people uh, want to get a copy of the book, is that still available or is it now published? Um, I'm, I'm being a, a little more careful about this. I have a publisher, as I think I mentioned last time, is probably going to almost certainly going to do this. Uh, but at the moment, um, if people, let's just handle this as kind of a person to person with people who are tuning into you here. Uh, if folks would like to email me at the fellowship of his sufferings, watch the plural, the fellowship of his sufferings at gmail.com. Um, I'm glad to share with you a readable but somewhat rough first draft PDF of the fellowship of his sufferings and then urge you, um, Lord willing, in the future to keep an eye on uh, Just and Sinner Press for what uh, I hope is going to develop into a full-blown, carefully edited, indexed, hard copy that you're going to want to have and share. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for the this conversation, and we'll look forward to the next one. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it.